This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, the talk is on the third way of St. Thomas Aquinas. In the past hundred years, it's one of the most disputed overways in the in scholarly literature. People disagree over what kind of argument it is, how it's related to other arguments of Thomas Aquinas, and even given agreement about what kind of argument it is, people disagree over whether it's a valid argument, whether the premises ground the conclusion. And so what was said earlier about the five ways applies here. You don't have to believe that they work to be Catholic, okay? Monsignor Whipple thinks that there's uh, error, a serious error in the third way. He's an authority on Thomas Aquinas's metaphysics. I used to think that there was an error in the third way myself for many years, but it's helpful and interesting, okay? All right, so what is this third way? The first way focused on motion. There's motion in the world to move back, to go back to a first mover or movers or whatever. Um, the second way, efficient causes. So we see efficient causes in the world, a particular kind of action in the world. Third way, we start with kinds of substances, substances that do something. They are subject to corruption and they're also generated, or they have something done to them to make them, okay? So it's an argument based on kinds of things in the world, something about substances. Now, with all these other arguments, it proves something, namely in this case, a, necess a necessary substance that has no cause of its necessity. Uh, it's in my view, even though we don't prove much about the existence of God in this question too, we don't prove much about his essence, that is, or what he isn't, um, we do prove some properties or predicates that belong to God and only to God. So there's a way in which they all prove to the same uh, thing, namely God. And we'll, we can argue that these predicates can only belong to God and one God. Now, this particular argument, like Thomas's other arguments, comes from an earlier tradition. It closely resembles an argument from Maimonides, who is a Jewish uh, kind of theologian, philosopher at any rate. Um, Maimonides took some of it from a Muslim philosopher called Avicenna, who had an argument from contingency, although Avicenna's understanding of necessity and contingency and the structure of the argument are very, very different. And ultimately, it can be seen as rooted in Aristotle. There's a section of the De Celo of Aristotle where he argues that there have to be incorruptible substances. And then you can also go from these incorruptible substances to the prime mover. And there are similar arguments in the metaphysics. So this first way has two parts. And in your handout, you'll see some texts on the first page of the handout. 
The first part is in this text under one. The second part is in a group of texts number two. So we've got two texts, two parts. The first part moves from the existence of corruptible substances to the existence of necessary substances. Okay. Corruptible substances are what? Substances that come in and out of existence. To understand this argument, you should understand the difference between creation and generation, corruption and annihilation. Generation and corruption are things that come in and out of existence, but they're in potency to become something else, like the pig was dancing happily some months ago, and then it was bacon at our breakfast, okay? That's called corruption. The pig is no longer. There's, we don't mean moral corruption, we don't mean... So now it's becoming part of you and me, okay. So there's a kind of oneness, things come into and out of existence that way, from other things into other things. Creation and annihilation is different. Creation involves giving something being at all. So it's not generation out of something else. It's not corruption into something else. It's just the fact that God gives something being at all. So the term or the end of, of generation is what? A composite of matter and form. The term of creation is being, giving something being, right? Only God's creates, uh, created things generate, right? That pig was the end of a long line of pigs, uh, one pig generating another, okay? So the first part moves from the fact that there are things in the world such as pigs, cows, trees, to the existence of necessary substances. The second part moves from necessary substances, the existence of any necessary substances, to a substance that has necessity from itself. Why is this? Um, what does it mean to have necessity from itself or another? Basically means to be caused or created, okay? There's all sorts of strange notions of necessity and possibility in contemporary philosophy. If you haven't studied them, don't worry unless you're going to be doing philosophy. It's a very kind of sealed discipline. Um, if you have studied them, set them apart for the moment, okay? Uh, so basically, being necessary means that you aren't subject to generation and corruption. God might still take you out of existence, right? But, uh, well, he won't. You might almost wish that he, well, he wouldn't really, but, but he doesn't, okay? It always seems that it would be good luck for the bad, these people who believe in annihilation rather than hell. But uh, at any rate, uh, they, they can be annihilated, but they don't corrupt. They don't go into something else, okay? So that's the structure of the argument. Two parts you have to remember. From the contingent to the necessary, from the necessary from another to the necessary in itself.
two parts. Okay. Now I didn't re reproduce, I, I thought you might have your copies of the whole arguments. But what I've done is I've reproduced parts of the arguments. And in this case, I've reprinted the, ver the, the sentence from the third way after one and two that illustrates these two points the best. And then I've put text underneath which are arguments for these points. Okay. Now the arguments for these points are not explicitly part of arguments for the existence of God, at least the ones that I've printed here. Basically, Thomas gives this kind of argument that he gives in the third way in about three places, which actually isn't very much for Thomas Aquinas. For instance, there's lots of arguments for motion. Um, one place is in an argument for the thesis that God is eternal in Summa Contra Gentiles 1.15. Another one is that God is the cause of every being in uh, Summa Contra Gentiles 2.15. And that's before he wrote the first part of the Summa, right? It's around 1269 or so. This is earlier than that. Summa Contra Gentiles. And then one of his later works, the Compendium Theologiae, he has a very short um, argument that's similar in form. Now, people often question, how are the arguments related? What... Um, are they meant to be the same kinds of arguments? To me, it seems that they're at least similar, and they certainly provide arguments for the two of the most important premises in the third way. So whether or not they perform the same function or argue in exactly the same way, they give you arguments to go from the contingent to the necessary, and then from any sort of necessary to something that's necessary in itself, okay? So, we look at this first part of the argument. Not all beings are able to exist and able not to exist. Rather, it must be that there is something necessary in the world. So it's the move from being able to exist and not able to exist to there being something else that's necessary. And again, necessary doesn't mean that God can't annihilate it. Necessary just means that it's not the kind of thing that is generated and corrupted. Um, now, in 1a, I give you the section from the Summa Theologiae that supports this statement. This is uh, the very complicated part of the argument, this first one. The second part is a lot like the second way. But this first part, and in particular the argument from the Summa, can be hard to think about. So I'll read it through once, and then I'll go back and uh, comment on the important points, okay? So let's just read this through. For that which is able not to exist is such that at some time it does not exist. Therefore, if everything is such that it is able not to exist, then at some time nothing existed in the world. But if this were true, then nothing would exist even now. For what does not exist begins to exist only through something that does not exist. Therefore, if there were no beings, then it was impossible that anything should have begun to exist, 
and so nothing would exist now, which is obviously false. Uh, it can be kind of hard to follow that argument, hard to read it. Uh, also, it's in many ways unlike arguments that he gives anywhere else. It is more close, however, to arguments given by Maimonides, who talks about how everything would have corrupted if everything were in the past, if things were all corruptible. And St. Albert has something similar in his metaphysics, um, which Thomas may not have known because of when, when it was written. Okay. So let's take a look at this one statement. For that which is able not to exist is such that at some time it does not exist. Right? It's pretty well... What it's for that which is possible not to be at some point is not. So being able not to exist is not a fact about something's existence on its own. Um, it's about what kind of thing it is. All right. The idea is that certain kinds of things, material things, at some point will corrupt. Now, it could be prevented from outside, right? So think of Adam's body before the fall. Think of the uh, bodies in heaven. That's on your next page. You'll th say 3a. There's a passage in which Thomas explains that um, these corruptible beings, if God makes them exist forever, it's not their nature, okay? It's that there's something outside that causes them. So we aren't talking about the fact of, oh, does God cause something to exist or not forever? We're talking about what kind of things are there out there? Are they all corruptible? So you can have incorruptibility by grace and glory. All right, there's nothing contradictory about it, but it still doesn't make something incorruptible because that's something extra in addition to the nature of the thing. Because of the kinds of things that material substances are, at least here under the moon, we uh, everything that comes to be goes away. All right. Now, when we say that it does not able not to exist, we're talking about its nature there's a temporal word here, and there's a lot of disagreements over how the different tenses work in this argument and what kind of uh, time we're talking about. I don't accept his interpretation of the third way, but it seems at least plausible to me, Owen's view that this quandoque, that it's at some time it is not, Thomas is talking about a time in the past. Okay. Now he gives arguments for this point, going from the fact that something is corruptible to the fact that it will be corrupted at some point. There's a very lengthy argument in the De Celo, his commentary on Aristotle, in which he explains, and I think gives a clearer argument than Aristotle gives. Okay, and I have this... Um, these texts in text B and C in the next page, I won't read them out, but they're there for your uh, ability to look over. 
Um, the idea is that what things natures will be determine what they'll do. So if something exists always, then it has to be, the, unless there's an external, like God's miracle, but norm, under normal considerations, if something exists always, then it has to be necessary. That's B, and C goes the other way and say if something is corruptible on the other hand, it has to at some point uh, disappear. Now, there's disagreement over what this means, but let me just summarize it. So in that one passage, we have whatever always exists must be the kind of thing that cannot be generated or corrupted because it is necessary. And two is whatever is the kind of thing that can be destroyed must at some time be destroyed. Okay. Now, when he's talking about how at some nothing would exist, what's he talking about? Um, what kind of non-existence? We've got two kinds of non-existence that we could be talking about, right? One is the non-existence before something comes into being. So the pig that we ate this morning was at one point just a glint in his parents' eyes, okay? Glimmer in his parents' eyes. They looked at each other, music played, and then we hit our pig. So, so there's a non-existence before, we could be talking about that, or we could be talking about a non-existence afterwards, that things like pigs eventually have to corrupt. I'm not sure whether it matters much for um, the argument. I think it's important just that whatever is generated and corrupted at some point does not exist. Maimonides tended to take it that, that they were talking about the corruption of everything. Some others, I think Owens, seems to think that it's talking about these things never would have been uh, generated in the first place. So at any rate, you can see that there are two different interpretations. First, what we mean by at some time, or second, whether the non-existence precedes or follows, precedes generation or follows from corruption, right? Because that pig existed for a brief moment in the world Afterwards, it was bacon before it was um, uh, whatever. Okay, keep it clean. All right, second part of the argument. If everything is such that it is able not to exist, then at some time, nothing existed in the world. So it's an aliquando, the at some time there. And so this seems to go from one thing being able to generate and corrupt at some one time to everything being able to generate or corrupt. And then the question is, does he mean at some one time? And if so, what kind of argument is this? Okay. All right. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention, this, this nothing that was in things, uh, because you're talking about nothing that precedes or follows generation. Some people say it has to be follows generation because there would have been no time before, right? But Owens notes that people, you can talk about imaginary time, right? So there wasn't any real time before the things were in the world and you had motion, but medievals were happy to talk about uh, 
as if there were. You can kind of uh, stretch it out. All right. So this is an interesting argument. It seems to be about the past from the tense of the words. It seems to be about a past that either preceded the generation of everything or followed the corruption of everything. Um, this is the, the one, one of the problems is, is this a good argument? Uh, another problem is Thomas nowhere else argues this way, okay? So if you look at these uh, one, two, B and C, texts one, B and C, you have very similar arguments going from generation and corruption to being and not being, um, that something can be and not be, and then everything's going, and then you need to have a cause, but there's nothing about everything going out of existence in the past, okay? Same thing in C. So what do these arguments in the Summa Contra Gentiles do? They draw our attention to the fact that there needs to be an explanation of why substances exist at all, and there's also here an appeal to an infinite series of, of contingent causes. It says that there can't be an infinite series. There's no explicit mention of the infinite series as such in the text of the third way. There is in these two passages from the Summa Contra Gentiles. Okay. So that's why some people say it's a different argument. Monsignor Whipple thinks we should kind of swap out the argument in the text of the Summa with this argument from the text of the Summa Contra Gentilis. All right. I don't think so, but at any rate. It's interesting to me that the Compendium Theologiae simply argues that an existing cause has to be prior to potency and also makes no reference to an infinite series. So the notion is more of the way in which act is prior to potency. So I'm going to read this out for you. I didn't include it. Everything that has a possibility of being and not being needs something else to make it be. For as far as it is itself is concerned, it is indifferent with regard to either alternative. But that which causes another thing to be is prior to that thing. Hence, something exists prior to that which has the possibility of being and of not being. However, nothing is prior to God. Therefore, it is impossible for him to be and not be, of necessity. He must be. And since there are some necessary things that have a cause of their necessity, a cause that must be prior to them, God, who is the first of all, has no cause of his own necessity. And so that's an argument that God has necessity through himself, but you can see the similarity. We go from the existence of contingent beings to God, and we note that there are also necessary beings that are not God. All right. Okay. So the third way is interesting because it argues that if all substances were corruptible, then at one time there would have been nothing. It doesn't talk about an infinite series. It seems to say in the past there would have been nothing. Um, it seems to me that this passage is in some ways similar to Thomas's commentary on the metaphysics, in which we argue from the existence of, uh, in book 12, contingent beings to necessary beings, then to a first mover. And there's similar statements. It's actually uh, chapter 6, where Aristotle says, if everything were contingent, then nothing would be. 
and it's in the context of uh, pre-Socratics who thought that maybe everything was just night and day or, or that these were the explanations going on forever. But before that, he, um, he gives the arguments that Aristotle gives, and Aristotle gives arguments for heavenly bodies. These are necessary beings because they aren't generable or corruptible, okay? And Aristotle gives arguments that there has to be based on time and on eternity. What's the problem, though? Thomas Aquinas thinks that these arguments are not demonstrative. They're good. He thinks they lead to a true conclusion, but you couldn't use them by themselves to demonstrate God's existence. Why? Because the eternity of the world is not demonstrable. We just would have good reasons for believing in it. And in general, a lot of what we know about the heavenly bodies, at least if we're in the 13th century, is based on supposition. It's a, it's a best explanation. Unlike Thomas thinks what we know about the four elements, which is um, demonstrable, it's just that Thomas doesn't give the demonstration. He relies on the authority of others. Okay. But at any rate, so what do we have here? In this metaphysics passage, he says, even if the arguments which prove that motion and time are sympaternal are not demonstrative and necessary conclusives, still the things which are proved about the sympaternality and immateriality of the first substance necessarily follow. For even if the world were not sympaternal, it would have to be brought into being by something that has prior existence. And then he says, if that weren't sympaternal, there'd have to be something else, and there can't be an infinite series, so something has to be ex to exist. Um, that's interesting among, uh, I mean, there are just a lot of things that are interesting about that passage to me. But one of them is what? That he's giving his own argument, and it's not, he's not saying that in that text he's uh, describing what Aristotle gives. So he says Aristotle gives it in other places, to be fair, but not in the text that he's commenting on. So what do we have here then? We've got an argument involving act and potency or some sort of substances that are necessary. There are two kinds of necessary substances for Thomas Aquinas, namely uh, the necessary bodies that just go in circle for eternity or at least since God created them. And then we have, or for sempaternity, maybe people would rather say, or... Uh, spiritual substances, okay, like angels, all right, human souls are interesting because we are corruptible, we're all corrupt, but uh, we have a part that's incorruptible, but at any rate, the angels don't even have a part that's uh, corruptible, but there's a similarity there, okay. So what do we have here then? We, 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 I think we obviously don't have the elements. Uh, these are not necessary substances. They just come in and out and they're moved by the heavenly movers. So it seems to me that we can connect this argument in the kind of traditional way. Really before the 17th century, people spent some time on the arguments for the existence of God, but they didn't, especially the third way wasn't much of a big deal. I haven't found responses to objections to the third way very early on. People actually want to talk about God, not kind of piddle with these different arguments for God's existence. But 
once people start talking about how to interpret it, the general interpretation then is that there's this whole that's somehow capable of existing or not existing. And if there were no necessary beings, it wouldn't exist now. Okay. So why might we be able to move from the corruptibility of the part to the corruptibility of the whole? That's an old criticism. An old criticism of the third way is that it involves an error in distribution. And there are contemporary criticisms that are similar. There's a fallacy of composition or a quantifier shift, right? So an example might be, no individual soldier can conquer the enemy. Therefore, the soldiers cannot conquer the enemy. You go from something about the individual to something about the group, uh, and that's a false inference. So the application here might be something like, every contingent substance needs some cause in order to exist. Therefore, the whole collection of contingent substances needs some cause in order to exist. Problem is, it seems to me that this isn't so clearly an error in this case. Why? First, think about what Thomas is arguing. He's not arguing against the impossibility of an infinite series of accidentally ordered contingent causes and effects in time, such as the generations of rabbits by other rabbits. This could go on for eternity, right? Peter Rabbit, Peter's ancestors, Peter's whatever, at least for Thomas Aquinas, great parents, great grandparents, none of them is eternal, but they're all overlapping. They all fall out of existence. Thomas does not think that you can give an argument that they can't overlap. They can overlap, and in fact, philosophers can plausibly believe that they do forever. So it's not that kind, that kind of argument. Or the pigs, right? The pig that we ate could have ancestors going back, I, I guess, until we all had our common ancestor, the rat, and the, but they didn't know about that. So we all have the same great-grandfather and the rat, but the pig, at any rate, the pig going back and back, right, they overlap. So no one pig, the species for Aristotle is internal, but not the individual. So Thomas has nothing against this overlapping. But what explains it, the existence of these things that overlap? Now, when we argue from part to whole, sometimes these arguments work, especially when the predicates don't involve quantity. They aren't quantitative and don't involve a necessary connection with quantity. So for example, take the case of the individual soldier to the army. The size of the army, the number of people, that's directly relevant to the victory. That's why you can't move from individual to group. Or in the case of the rabbit, we're talking about different rabbits existing at different times. But the argument can work with accidents that are not, even not proper accidents, but belong to individuals when they aren't quantitative, so long as each individual has them. So for instance, you can say all the individual horses are white, therefore this herd of horses is white, right? It's whiteness, I mean, it's on an extended surface, but there's nothing wrong with that kind of argument. Also with non-quantitative essential predicates or proper accidents. Now the examples that use are, are from old physics, right? So you have a rock um, going downwards. You get a collection of rocks. What are they gonna do? Go downwards, not upwards, okay? A collection of rocks is heavier than an individual rock, but this property of going downwards exists for the group as well as for the individual. 
Another thing is air, which of course they think is an element. But what's a property of air? It's capable of being illuminated. You can put light through it. It's true of a small group of air. You can argue that this is an essence of this air to be illuminated too. If you had air going on forever, it would be illuminated, okay? Because you found some sort of essential property. Now, generability and corruptibility, I think, are something like this. They belong to contingent substances on account of what they are, namely on account of the fact that they're compositions of matter and form. Consequently, the argument from part to whole seems to involve properties that are neither quantitative nor necessarily connected with quantity. Right? A world made entirely of generable and corruptible individuals would itself as a whole be generable and corruptible. Consequently, this whole world would require an external cause that would explain its being. So what's the argument in this first section? The argument is therefore not that there cannot be an infinite series of generable and corruptible substances in time, but instead that an entirely generable and corruptible whole itself needs a causal explanation. This dependence on the cause has nothing to do with quantity, uh, and you have the need for a cause, right? The elements, prime matter, these don't work. They aren't the kinds of things that are act. Now, why do we have the temporal element? Because things are generated and corrupted in time. And in a way, things, potency can be temporally prior to time, like the potential pig to the actual pig. Although the other way around, there's always going to be an actual pig, at least Thomas thinks. We would think it's the rat and whatever in between. Um, that is, well, depending on how you do species too. But Dr. Carl could talk about that. So this goes on in uh, time, right, afterwards. Um, so you can say in the past, nothing would have existed if everything's generable or corruptible because you wouldn't have an act to explain it. There would be nothing there. It's one way of interpreting the argument. I think it's plausible. It also makes it closer to the text I gave you from the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Compendium Theologiae, okay? And it seems more or less accurate to me, although it's very hard to tell because there aren't other texts in which Thomas gives the same argument, okay? Which is odd itself. So that's the first part, contingent to necessary. The second part is easy, at least if you've already grasped the principles and the structure of the second way. And you have this insight, okay, into the truth of the principles of the second way. But it's impossible to go to an infinity among necessary beings that have a cause of their necessity. What do we have here? Efficient causality of some sort. Um, something causes their necessity. Okay. And I have in uh, two texts, if you want to look at them, from question 44, article 1, add 2. He talks about Aristotle, says that there are are necessary things that have causes. And among these is the necessary substances. Now, Aristotle seems to refer mostly to the, uh, some people think to final causality, that may or not be true. Some people think of that it's to the bodies and not the uh, separate movers. That may or may not be true. But Thomas thinks that Aristotle's talking about some sort of efficient causality of necessity 
by the first mover. Okay, so what is it to be unnecessary? Necessary in a caused way is to be owe your necessity to something else, not giving it like the God gives it to the incorruptible body, but the body is already corruptible. It's just incorruptible by grace or glory. But this cause makes it the kind of thing that's incorruptible. Okay, so to be necessary in an uncaused way is the same as to have being as the nature or essence. So we have the impossibility then of an infinite causal se sequence of getting necessity from another. And uh, how do we prove it? He just says it's the same as in the second way. So look back there. So in conclusion, even though the second part of the third way resembles the second way, the starting point of the third way is distinct, namely that there are beings which are subject to generation and corruption. The first part of the third way is the most controversial since it moves from the need to explain the being of particular contingent substances to the need for a necessary cause or causes of the being of the whole of contingent substances. Thomas clearly thinks that since all substances are contingent, that if they all were contingent, there would be no substances. At some time in the past, there would be nothing. He never argues that since all contingent beings do not exist at some one time, then there is some one time when they do not exist. He does use the fact, however, that all contingent beings at some time or other do not exist. So this is a fact. If it's contingent, it's going to not exist. To argue for the conclusion that if all substances were contingent, then there would be a time when no substances existed. <laughs>